Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our warmest thanks to Brady for leading us in worship. I know Diana's out with sickness, and looking around, we have quite a few families that are out with sickness this week, but we extend our thanks as well to Brent Small for opening the word for us from the Psalter last week while I was away at training. What a blessing to be reminded of the garments of our King in all of their beauty and splendor. In fact, the very subject of beauty has been, well, the talk, it seems, all around the last few weeks. Something has captured the eye of our people, and they speak of it continuously. They have noticed the beauty in our fall colors this year. The beauty of the leaves changing, bright reds and and yellows and oranges, particularly colorful and bold this year, aren't they? It has drawn our attention. But I will submit to you that those beautiful colors are meant to do much more than that. The very beauty that we behold in the leaf, let us be reminded, it comes from death. When we are taken aback by the the bright red and the yellow and the orange, we are witnessing the dying of those leaves. In fact, the very theme of autumn, of fall, that which makes it beautiful, is death. And here is where the mind of the Christian should begin working. When we see death anywhere, we understand that it is a matter of theology. It's also a fact of nature, yes, but it is one that is informed beginning to end by theology. How we interpret the death we see around us, we're told by his word. Thus, let us consider those bright leaves. Well, Scripture tells us that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16 Of course, Paul repeats this in Romans. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So beginning there, we have our, well, our overarching premises. That Jesus made this tree. Jesus made these leaves. That they were made from him and through him and for him. And that all creation sings of our creator. And that all creation points to our maker. It sings his praises. So what do we do with these beautiful leaves? Where should our affection be drawn? Well, when we look to the topic of death in Scripture, 99 times out of 100, it's a bad thing. It's a consequence. It is wages for sin. The connotations are bad, not beautiful. So where in Scripture do we see any death as bringing forth beauty, like our leaves? It is in the death of Christ. And subsequently, the death of those who love him and the martyrs who will die for him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, the psalmist declares. That's the only place where we see that death can be beautiful, where death brings beauty. Everywhere else, it's a curse. So what of those leaves, dear Christian? In them we behold one of the few places in creation where the death of it brings out the beauty of it. Those bright red leaves are dying. 
and its dying is bringing forth beauty. Now, that is not the norm, not in nature, not in Scripture. Only one place does death bring beauty. Only one place where the curse is captured and ransomed to a blessing, and that is in Christ. Say, ah, pastor, you know, it sounds like a bit of a stretch to me. Did God really mean to point me to the death of Christ through the colors in the leaves? Saints of God, the death and resurrection of Christ is the very fulcrum event in all of history. It's the very event around which all else turns. It was the event that, that all looked forward to. And it's the one that we now look back upon when the one who made creation died for that creation. Are you asking if that creation doesn't point to it and sing about it? You'd better believe it. It was everything. It's not just the elect that are redeemed from the curse. Nature will also be redeemed from the curse. Creation groans under the curse, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be no more death. Those red and orange and yellow leaves outside, beloved, are singing. They're declaring there was a death. And from that death came beauty. It is Christ. It's all of Christ. And now because he died, if you are a Christian, that means we too must die. That we are buried with him in his death, crucified with Christ. That means that we're now enabled, Scripture tells us, we're called to now die to ourself. To die to ourselves daily. To crucify the flesh with its lusts and desires. When we tell him that our life is not our own, that we are his, we put to death the old man. And when Christ in us accomplishes that, we will be beautiful as well. Red and yellow and orange. Bright and bold for your Savior. Beloved, it's my prayer that Scripture change your autumn time. Your fall forevermore. Every time you see the beauty from death falling from the trees. Let us not look at those radiant colors the same ever again. May you and your children and grandchildren walk out and see the beauty and remember what creation is singing about and what it's pointing to, the majestic death and resurrection of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we completed at long last our four-part series on the Garden of Gethsemane, looking first to the, the awful weight of the glory of that night. The command to watch and pray, the infamous kiss of betrayal, and finally we saw a sword, a snare, and indeed a sheet. Our early morning scene culminating with an unknown man fleeing naked into the night. The disciples all fleeing, and our Lord having now been arrested. Well, I pray that series blessed you as we really walk step by step with our Lord, as we left the upper room. We left the eastern gate across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and into the garden. But today, beloved, we begin the difficult account of Jesus' trials. And I use that term very loosely, as you will see. These were no official trials at all, at least not according to Jewish law. Nevertheless, it would be through this 
perjury and through this perversion of justice that our Lord's sentence would be handed down. Having been arrested, we will see that Jesus was, he'll be jostled from one location to another in in very short order as wicked men seek to do their deeds and where it feels most comfortable, under the cloak of darkness. We will see such fitting trials for the evil that would be accomplished. But nevertheless, we're encouraged, knowing this morning that God allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. That he would take this miscarriage of justice that culminated in the most heinous crime in history, the crucifixion of perfection, and use that evil to save his people. Being reminded that while this scheming was was born and bred in the hearts of men, the wicked serve a great purpose in the plans of God. And to give you an overview of Jesus' movement over the next few, two chapters, it's, it's easiest to remember that Jesus' fitting show trials here are, are really split up into two parts, or, or two phases, if you will. We first have the religious trial, which had three parts, and we have the, the Roman, or the secular trial as well, which also had three parts, both incredibly different in their, in their approaches and their rules and their customs, their authority, and of, of course their motivation. So from a 30,000 foot view of these, if, if you want to take a note, our, our religious trials were by Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, and our Roman trials will be Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. So again, we have Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. Now, our takeaway through these trials, what we're going to understand at the completion of our journey through them, this was a wicked miscarriage of justice in every conceivable fashion. As the title of our series suggests, it's no small irony. In fact, it's quite fitting that the greatest evil of all time, the execution of the spotless Lamb of God, would be preceded by show trials spawned from the same evil. But before we launch into these trials, let us be reminded, as we are and have been through every step of Passion Week, this pulpit has labored to remind you this is God's agenda. That Jesus was not crucified. He was not swept away by the blind wrath of a mob. Scripture tells us that it was the Father's pleasure. To put him there. And we're reminded with great joy that even as we will watch Jesus be put before rulers and kings. Before they ever laid a hand on him, even in the garden. That he blew them over to the ground in the garden. With just a declaration that I am. Reminding us that Jesus is not here against his will. And that no one takes his life from him. He gave it up willingly. These wicked men may stand over Jesus in judgment, in these fitting show trials, but make no mistake who is in charge. Never lose sight of that in the awful glory of Passion Week. Never lose sight of the beauty. Whether it is the beauty of God being at the helm, directing the events, or whether it's the beauty of substitution, as Jesus endures scandalous mockings and beatings on our behalf, The beauty and passion week must ever be before us. If Christ is not radiant before our eyes, if he does not sparkle 
as we preach through Passion Week, then we've not seen it properly. So with that, let us look to our text as Jesus is led away, Mark 14, 53 through 59. Mark 14, 53 through 59. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And some, standing up, were giving false testimony against him, saying, We ourselves heard him say, I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this way was their testimony consistent. Heavenly Father, as we make this next step in Passion Week, Lord, we are desperate to have our hearts prepared for this. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate the light of our mind's eye, that we may see it, that we may be there with you in it, that we may see you rightly, that we may see ourselves rightly in light of it. Lord, we are helpless without your Holy Spirit to wield this word. And we ask that you would prepare the hearts that would receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great men of the founding of our country was John Adams. While not an Orthodox Christian in his later life, he was dabbling in Unitarian Universalism. You may not recall that term. Write it down. Perhaps look it up later. But yet his views on the world were very much influenced by his Puritan father and by the Bible. Adams understood the fallibility and the sinfulness of men. He knew men were not intrinsically good, but, as Scripture says, are intrinsically drawn toward evil and toward sin. Because of this, Adams knew that well, the instinct of natural man, whether it be politically or relationally, would be to help their friends and punish their enemies. That the natural man does not love their enemies, they hate them. That's what made the Sermon on the Mount so revolutionary. The natural man plays favorites. He takes care of his friends only. And Adams understood this. And it was this worldview that drove him to his famous saying that we all know today. That, quote, we are a nation of laws, not of men. Close quote. Now, still the hearts of men attempt to go around such laws to do what their heart desires, to line the pockets of their friends, or even use that very system of laws to attack their enemies, political or otherwise. Reminding us, as, as much as we make law after law, legislation cannot change the heart. For even that legislation, that law, is itself the byproduct of someone's fallen heart. It's flawed from the beginning. However, being a nation of laws and not of men is the best we're going to have in a fallen world on this side of eternity. As important as that is, we were not the first to come up with such a concept. Now, even though it was a theocracy, Israel was a nation governed by the rule of law. In fact, there was no place even 
within the borders of Israel that was considered lawless. That's quite remarkable for the day. Vast swaths of the world at that time were completely lawless, but not here. Of course, that means of this order was primarily dictated and it was enforced by the synagogues. The head of that began with your, your grand poobas in Jerusalem, right? The Sanhedrin. But even every small village, in fact, anywhere you had a, a collection of more than 120 men, there would be a local court established for that town. That was the law. And this was serious business. I bet you may think that in a population so small, like 120 men, maybe they have a, a judge or two, try 23. And always an odd number as well, right? Got to protect against the stalemate. In fact, even if it was smaller than 120, even if it was as small as, say, 20 men, a group of men living in small tents away, 20 men only, they would still have three to five judges. Now, we say all that to highlight that Israel was a nation of laws, Given in Leviticus, given in Deuteronomy, written and codified in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, other controlling documents. This was not a nation of barbarians. They had a highly developed system of laws and procedures, of councils and judges. Just as today, right? We witness a courtroom with judges and lawyers that are bound to the law. So it was in ancient Israel. Or as we will see, so it was supposed to be. Much more on that as we wade into this dark hour of treachery where a nation of laws became a nation of fallen men once again at the highest of levels. So with that, let us look to our first verse. Verse 53, verse 53. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest. Now stop right there. What a bag of deceit to unpack in that small statement alone. Well, let's identify who our first religious player is here in this first scene. It says that it's the high priest. Now, this is Caiaphas. That's spoken of by Mark. And we'll circle back around to this critical part of our, our fitting show trial. But a critical stop has happened first, before we ever get to Caiaphas, the current, Caiaphas, the current high priest. Like many parts of Passion Week, we have to rotate that four-sided gospel diamond to get a full picture of our scene. So let's do that here. Looking to John's account, there's no need to turn there. I can read it for us. Looking at John's account, John 18, verses 12 and 13. Tell us, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. For he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So before we even get to Caiaphas, we go straight to Annas. Now, who was Annas? Most of you in here know that name. Why bring Jesus here first? Well, to put it in modern terms, this would be the equivalent of bringing someone to the mob boss who had interfered with their business. That's exactly what Annas was. Even as the former high priest, he was a corrupt businessman cloaked in religious garb and title. Now, he was over 80 years old by this time. He had amassed himself wealth of power and prestige. And recall, when Jesus drove out the thieves and the money changers in the temple, what was the name of that market? It was the bazaars of Annas. He was the kingpin, 
the temple was his own personal treasury to grow his empire and wealth. Now, just so we aren't confused, even though Annas was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, he still retained the, the title of high priest. That was a title that was given for life. It's kind of like our presidents today, right? They're still referred to as president. But Annas really ran the show behind the scenes. It would be something like a former president controlling and influencing all the operations and decisions from the background, making Caiaphas the current president just a puppet, really. I know nothing like that could ever happen today, no. But so it was. The mob boss Annas was to decide whether or not to send this troublemaker upstream or not. Now, being as Jesus completely destroyed Annas's market in the temple, the one bearing his own name, and who relentlessly spoke against their entire religious fraud, how friendly do we think this meeting was? Annas had one job right now, find a crime. We know what we want to do with him, we want to kill him. Now we need an excuse to do it. We have a verdict, now we need a crime. So we understand that before Jesus ever gets to Caiaphas, who it is that Jesus has brought before. Annas was the puppet master of the whole temple scam. He was the brains and the juice behind the whole operation. But again, we cannot even leave the first sentence of verse 53 without running headlong into blazing miscarriages of justice. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest. Again, we must stop. Stop right there. Two more items we must highlight. Understanding that Israel is a nation of laws. And this alone, first sentence, breaks about five of them. You'd be happy to know I won't detail all five. But merely the fact that Jesus was, quote, led away was a crime on their part. Guess what? Presumption of innocence did not originate in America. It was also Jewish law of the time. To be led away is to be treated as a criminal with no presumption of innocence, no charges levied. In addition, merely bringing Jesus to Annas, then to Caiaphas in this way, further trampled the law of Israel. By written law, all trials, all trials were to be held in the daytime and in public. Full stop. There was no such thing in Israel as a closed-door trial. There was no such thing as no media allowed. Full transparency. You couldn't even start a trial without the sun shining. Nor can it go into sundown. And it certainly can't be on Passover. Strike, strike, strike. All horrendously against the law. And yet here in the dark hours of the early morning... We're going to have Jesus bounced between six people, six courts, most under the cover of night, all in about a four to five hour time frame. Bang, bang, bang. And every one of them illegal. Every one. Now back to our text. While Mark doesn't record this stop to, to Annas, the mob boss, while this first questioning was happening, Mark does tell us what was happening across the way. The last part of verse 53 and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes 
gathered together. Now, when it, when it says all, it means to convey either all, meaning all 71 members of, of the Sanhedrin, or certainly the vast majority of them. Now, technically, all they needed was a, a quorum, though, of 23 to do the shame that they came to do. Why does that matter? That they were all gathered together. Because every chief priest, every elder, every scribe there knows this is illegal. The scribes literally study the law for a living, letter by letter. Yet there's not an ounce of integrity in the whole lot. There's zero regard for the law. Much of which, by the way, is based in Mosaic law. This is God-given law in many instances. Straight from Deuteronomy as we read from this morning. The fact that they are here, a complete representative composite of the Sanhedrin, gathered with Caiaphas, is proof positive that they are all full-on corrupt from the top down. Not one is recorded as objecting to the dozens of laws being broken in Jesus' detainment and arraignment. Of course, if we could be there to ask Caiaphas to his face, what do you think you're doing? You think he'd say, I don't care about the law? Who cares? Oh, not at all. Sin always has an excuse. There's always a justification in waiting. And I can tell you with great certainty what theirs would have been. How are they saving face for these gross violations? Walk with me. We know from historical writings that Romans conducted their civil trials just after sunrise. Thus, they would feel justified in their actions, right? Well, I hate to do it at this unlawful hour, but we need to have him ready for Pilate. And that's going to happen at first light. That, dear ones, is the stench of pragmatism. That's where ministry and integrity go to die. Yeah, we're breaking ten different laws, but it'll get the job done. And Jesus needs to be killed for the good of our whole nation. Not only does Annas want him dead personally for for trashing his bazaar, but if he is a revolutionary, as he's accused, he's going to bring upon us the wrath of Rome. It's pragmatism. As Christians, we don't do what works. We do what Scripture commands. The consequences are the Lord's. The obedience is ours. The Sanhedrin should have done what the law commanded. And we're not speculating on this. We know they were guided by pragmatism. Caiaphas says exactly this in John 11. Listen, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us. There it is. That one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Did you hear that? That pragmatism was their open cover for their wickedness. When that sun peaks over the Mount of Olives, Roman court is going to be in session. And we have to be ready. And it must be quick. Because public sentiment supporting Jesus can grow very quickly. Jerusalem is pulsating with almost 3 million people for Passover. Word would spread like wildfire. 
Messianic passions were already at a, a fever pitch, as they always were this time of year. We need to do it fast and do it now. That's the mindset. And we must grasp this, or we're going to miss so much of this scene. Back to our text, verse 54. Verse 54, look who's reintroduced. And Peter, following him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Well, those who are a little quick on their feet, as we look at verse 54, well, notice that verse 54 flows right into verse 66. Look down on your page. What do we have here? What do we see? Well, something that's not made an appearance in quite a while. The Mark and Sandwich. That literary technique, right? It's unique to Mark where he, he inserts something into the middle of another scene only to pick it up back later. It's the bane of every expositor's existence. It's very hard to deal with. But he does it, and that's how he writes. And of course, we never split up the sandwich, putting the bread back together. We read it just as Mark gave it to us. So thus, in the midst of Jesus' show trial, Peter is very briefly here reintroduced. Now, we're going to cover much more of this when we actually preach through the denial of Peter coming up in a few weeks. But we're meant to be aware of Peter's presence here. Now, still, there's a bit more to how Peter got in the courtyard, remembering that the Sanhedrin usually met in a hall on the west side of the temple. Inside the enclosure is actually called the Judgment Hall. This is not there. This is Caiaphas's home or his palace, if you will. Luke's account tells us that. Now, bringing Peter in, in John's account, he adds something. John writes, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. That was John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, interesting, and entering with Jesus into the court of the high priests. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Hmm. Yet Peter remained outside in the courtyard, didn't he? While his master was inside. Peter was drawn by love for his Savior, yet he was crippled by the fear of man. Have you ever been there? <laughs> Being a follower of Jesus, yet following so far behind that you can't even be seen. Peter followed, but he followed at a distance. How many desire to be followers of Jesus for all the, the benefits of being with his people. For experiencing the peaceable fruit of righteousness that, that dwells with his people. They want all the trappings of Christ. In truth, they want a crown without a cross. Edwards puts his finger right on it. Writing, quote, many Christians today are following Christ from a distance. Desiring to sap all his benefits, but unwilling to bear his reproach. This spirit of self-preservation will inevitably lead to denying Christ when the heat is on. His reputation, his comfort will be of far greater value than the praise of God and of eternal reward. There's much more to say on Peter as we move along. We can't pause there, but in a few weeks' time you won't want to miss that. But here we now Mark draws our gaze back inside where our miscarriage of justice is taking place, our fitting trial is already in progress. Back to our text, verse 
55, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against the Jews, against Jesus, to put him to death, and they were not finding any. Now hang on. Does anyone notice a problem here? (laughs) Arrest him first, then go find witnesses against him. In other words, the sentence is set. They want to put him to death. Now go find a crime. I didn't graduate law school, but I do know that that isn't right. And it was also against Jewish law. So here they are, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, trying to gather their witnesses. I think that would be tough to do. There's not a whole lot of people strolling around that time of night. But let's not confuse the last part of verse 45, where it reads, and they were not finding any. That means that they couldn't find anyone credible. They actually found lots of people willing. Look at this, verse 56, moving forward, verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Many! And how did they manage to drum up many at 2.30 in the morning? Money. Bribery. Matthew's account tells us this. And that's keeping with their usual M.O., isn't it? They bribed Judas. They bribed the guards when Jesus was resurrected to lie about Jesus' body being stolen, Matthew 28. So yeah, this is pretty much business as usual for them. Now is it likely that these false witnesses were, were basically on call when they would be needed? They've been paid, they've been bribed, but now they're just waiting for the call. Probably. Probably that's the way it happened. It's not likely they were just going door to door. This was likely already arranged and paid for. That only makes the treachery that much worse. Still, these aren't very smart false witnesses. They're not very smart because they forgot to get together beforehand and get their stories straight. Now, by Jewish law, that makes their testimony unusable. The witnesses need to agree. You might be surprised to know that the the makeup of the religious court here, well, it's somewhat the same as in Western law. You have the judges, and that's your Sanhedrin right now. You have your prosecution as well. But in Israel, the witnesses served as the prosecution. And then you'd have the accused. But saints, just like today, under Jewish law, the accused had the right to representation. More treachery. Jesus had no lawyer, as it were. No representation, as was required by law. Nothing but a fitting kangaroo court at this point. But saints, to know Jewish law is to see something else that's unthinkable here in verse 56. That we read, for many were giving false testimony against him, should stop us in amazement. Now, it's not so in our culture today. People are falsely accused every day, right? People's lives and reputations are are ruined all the time by false accusations. In those instances, rarely is anything done to the offender. Not so in ancient Israel. Not by a long shot. Harken back to our corporate reading of Scripture this morning, expertly selected by Brady. Listen to the stakes again, saints. Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. 
if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the man who have the dispute, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall inquire thoroughly. And behold, if the witness is a false witness, listen to this, beloved, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That is the law of the land. If the crime you accuse someone of would have brought them the death penalty, if you are a false witness, you shall receive the death penalty. But what was Jesus accused of? What was his supposed crime? Insurrection? Blasphemy? Claiming to be a king? These charges, they would vary between the religious and the secular trials. But one thing remained the same with all the charges. They all meant death. They all meant death. Insurrection? Death. Blasphemy? Death. Claiming a king higher than Caesar? You or anyone else? Death. In fact, that's exactly what all the early Christians were killed for. That was the charge on their death warrant, wasn't it? Claiming a king higher than Caesar. That's death. So if many, many were willing to stand up before the Sanhedrin and commit a crime that by law would bring the death penalty upon themselves, what does that tell you? Does that not shine a light upon Jesus' statement in Matthew 15? Declaring that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Your religion is dead. Your religion is completely apostate. You are corrupt from the top down. Don't you see, Israel? The law could not change your hearts. It's powerless to do so. You need a new heart. You can't hope to see the kingdom unless you're born again. You need the very one you're trying to crucify. The law is death. It only has the power to kill and to condemn. But the Spirit gives life. And if the very gatekeepers of religious life are so corrupt that they are paying off people to commit a crime that brings the death sentence... The entire tree must be pulled up by its roots. It's rotten to the core. For many were giving false testimony against him. That's pretty shocking when we understand the penalty for what they're doing. Mosaic law even. They're a brood of vipers. They're whitewashed tombs. But as we said, there's a problem with our witnesses. Right? We don't care if you lie, but your lies need to match. But their testimony was not consistent. And by the way, Jewish law, also like Western law, allows for the defense to have witnesses as well. We will never see that. Such a fitting trial. Finally, our last verses, 57 through 59. I'm going to read those as one. And some standing up were giving false testimony against him, saying, We ourselves heard him say, 
I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands. And in three days, I will build another made without hands. And not even in this way was their testimony consistent. Well, let, it, let us be reminded that up to this point, up to this point, they've captured and arrested Jesus without charge, violating his presumption of innocence under Jewish law. They've held his trial under the cover of night in private. Well, that's to be public and in the daytime. No trials at Passover were allowed. That was illegal. No counsel or representation given to Jesus. No defense witnesses for Jesus. We haven't even gotten to the other injustices yet, but understand that even if the death penalty was given, by Jewish law, a night must pass before the sentence was carried out. Giving, other, of course, other witnesses time to, to come forward and give a defense. However, only a few hours passed before Jesus was hanging on the cross. And even if, even if the death penalty were sought, each member must vote. They must go on record. Of course, we know that never happened. Jesus was condemned by the, the clamoring crowd. Not only that, but did you know that the Fifth Amendment of our Constitution, that, that right that we have to not incriminate ourselves, the right to not answer questions that would incriminate ourselves, that was also part of Jewish law. Yet they would ask Jesus a, a multitude of self-incriminating questions, didn't they? One injustice after another is foisted upon perfection. So what's the accusation here in our final text? We ourselves heard him say, I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands. And in three days, I will build another made without hands. Well, that's a lie. Is that what Jesus said? John 2.19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Speaking of his body, if you destroy my body in three days, I will raise it up. So their testimony was what? He said, I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands. Jesus never said that. And they were trying to sound smooth as well by, by juxtaposing language by saying with hands and without hands. But it was all a lie. But guess what? Desecration of a place of worship in the Greco-Roman world was a death penalty offense. Isn't it convenient that every charge, every one brought against our Lord, all happened to carry the penalty of death? What are the odds? What a fitting trial. Sadly, the scandal and treachery of these Show trials are only beginning. Because, of course, no true testimony could ever be leveled against Christ. He's blameless. And yet, even in their lying, they look the fool in front of everyone. So what then, beloved? What then makes our heart sing in the text? What then makes Jesus sparkle before our eyes? Once again, Jesus stands as our substitute, doesn't he? The accusations against Jesus, that he was an insurrectionist, he wasn't, but we were. 
before Christ saved us. We were the malcontents. We were the rebels against God's law. We were the resistance and the opposition, the anarchists, our hearts set on overthrowing the highest king. That charge of insurrection is ours. Yet Jesus took it upon himself. They called him a blasphemer. That's our charge. We sat on the throne of our lives and declared ourselves God of it, blaspheming. We lived by our own truth, calling God a liar, blasphemy. Through our lives, we shouted to the world that God is not, in fact, who he said he is. The charge of blasphemy was ours. And he took it. Desecrating a place of worship was the charge. That's you and me, friend. That charge was ours. Spending years in a pew while our hearts were far from him, that charge was ours. And he took it. How beautiful is our Savior. Does he sparkle in your eyes as he stands there in front of wicked men on our behalf as our substitute? Even now as the cross grows larger in the window, he is already taking our place. He took our place in the garden, being arrested as we deserved for our highest treason against the king, and even now, taking charges that were due to us upon himself. Saints, we cannot grasp the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ taking our sin and shame upon himself if we do not bask in the warmth and the sun of substitution. In the midst of treachery, we see beauty. In this darkest hour where where evil seems to triumph, the light is ever so bright if one has eyes to see. I pray that even now eyes are being opened to the glory of our Savior. That hearts of stone are being made new. That rebels are laying down their arms. That insurrectionists would bow to the king. That desecrators of his house would be made worthy by the high priest himself. That happens through repentance and faith. That's the glory of the gospel. That sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God because Jesus took our place. He paid our infinite debt that we could never pay. That's the best news you'll ever hear. That is the same grace and the same pardon that is on offer for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, as always, for this time that we are able to gather. Lord, we know that these are difficult words as we have stood there in the courtyard with you. As you have taken the charges that were ours. Lord, we ask that these words would go down deep. We ask that you would cause them to bring forth fruit in our life. We ask that you keep each one until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.